I love Lego. I've always loved Lego. I, my my mum actually still has all of my old Lego, and I spend a lot of time over the Christmas holidays building, rebuilding all of my things for my son. Of course, it was for him and not at all for me, but I was surprised how many of the pieces were not missing that I was actually able to finish off those things. I love Lego. Uh, my son, I just turned 35 last week. My son is also, he's about to turn five. He also loves Lego. He's had no encouragement from me whatsoever, I, I promise. Uh, for my birthday, he got me Lego Star Wars. So, and he, <laughs> he the first day, I think, he was okay for it to say, it's your Lego, can I play with your Lego? The next day when I got home, he met me at the door and he looked at me and he said, can we just say that it's our Lego? <laughs> that was his question. Before he even said hello, can we just say that it's our Lego? And he has spent a lot more time playing with Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon Jinn and Darth Maul than I have. Uh, I, I loved building Lego and I love the instructions and all that kind of stuff. But also, I like to know how things work. But then, part of that that I go a little bit further with is, well, why do we do that that way? So, yeah, I, I can see your end result. I can see that it's put together like that. But why do we do it that way? And I'm sure at times in my life, I've been really annoying to other people with these kinds of questions. I remember particularly, I was over at a friend's house and um, his dad was mowing the lawn. And if you're like me and you mow the lawn, you mow it in lines like, or, or you go around or there's some kind of method, but you actually follow a pattern. And he was using one of those, uh, like a fly mow. I don't know if you've seen like a fly mow. It, it plugs in, it has a lead, it's not petrol and it doesn't have wheels, it just kind of just kind of hovers, yeah, just kind of hovers. And he was just randomly doing whatever he wanted. There was no method whatsoever. He just, I was watching him just going, what? what? Why are you doing that like that? And I asked my friend, and stupidly I asked my friend, because his response was, hey, Dad, why are you mowing the lawn like that? Why are you doing it ran all random like a vacuum cleaner? And my question ended up just, and I like wish I could have shrunk and smaller, because I just was like... Oh, you don't ask, you don't challenge how your dad's doing things, certainly not in my house, if I had have hassled my dad like that, why are you doing that? I'm sure, I didn't even look at his face to see his response, but he, his response was basically just, this is how you do it with these things. And I kind of went, well, okay, maybe, I have never had a fly so maybe that is the answer. Um, but I'm always trying to look at the why behind what we do, not just what we do, uh, there's probably my favorite TED talk ever is a guy called Simon Sinek and, and it's called How Great Leaders Inspire Action and he talks all about the why, that people buy the why, not necessarily what we do or what we sell but actually why we have an organization at all, why we, what motivates us. All of these things are wrapped up in that question of why and particularly around people. And I, and I would say that a lot of our success at the Restore is actually because we've been together willing to ask those questions. Well, why? Why do we do it that way? Why, why do we serve people in that way? Why do we love people in that way? Can we do it better? Uh, and formulating and sharpening our vision and looking at the things that we do with a really honest and open and willing to put everything on the table and, and go, hey, why, why are we actually doing this? What are we trying to achieve? And why are we trying to achieve it? And so tonight, 
I'm going to talk a little bit about this. And can such faith save them? I'm really going to slip over on these things, Adrian Jackson. I'm <laughs> really trying to get the alpha message through to me. Fall over on the stage. Can such faith save them? And Caitlin's done a great job of making the slides up for us, as always. I love that I can just give her some words and she comes up with something and then time and time again, it actually just follows through on the theme of what we're talking about. But can such faith save them? If you're familiar with this verse, you will know that we're going to James 2. James chapter 2. If you have your Bibles there, I encourage you to turn to James chapter 2. Can such faith save them? And we're going to read from verse 14. If you have a little title there, you'll see it will say, Faith and Deeds. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Can such faith save them? I spoke the other week and I was highlighting how Jesus talks about when he's talking about people who are in and out, it was so much tied to their actions. Jesus actually challenges us that what we do counts, that what we do matters, but and even more so why we do it, part of what we believe. I, I was listening to a, a podcast recently, a lady called Jewel Rowe from Oasis, and she was explaining their framework for why they do what they do. Um, but one of the main things that stuck with me is she said, well, you always, you always act out what you believe. You always act out what you believe. And so if you think, if you're thinking that this place is going to hell in a handbasket, that's one of Adrian's favorite phrases. Where did you get that from? Going to hell in a handbasket. Um, I can't think of a compelling reason why I would love my neighbor, why I would act in such a way that would actually try to transform and make this place better. If I'm thinking that this is disappearing and God is zapping us up to somewhere else that he's pre-prepared for us, why would I be involved in anything that is trying to repair the environment? 
because the environment will not be here any longer at that, beyond that time, if that's what you believe. I, why would I be involved in serving anybody's immediate needs, their feeding or their clothing, apart from their comfort? But if that's all temporary and all disappearing, why would I be involved in that? If that's what you believe, if, why would you act? I can't find the compelling reasons, and I see it over and over again for people who believe that. They are not compelled to serve and love. And as Adrian was talking this morning, there's this beautiful paradox that, it, that yes, we need to love. If we do all of these things but we have not love, then all of the things don't matter. But also, the opposite is also true. If we do have love, will we not see all of these things? Will we not act in all of this way, in the same way that we're talking about here in James? If we have faith, will we not see that worked out? Will we not see the actions? Will we not see the fruit of that faith lived out in our lives as we live trying to serve and love others? But if our approach... And our belief is that God is actually, as Adrian was just praying this evening, that God is actually going to restore everything. When that change our approach to life, if God is actually in the business of fixing all of this up, then of course we would get involved in something that's going to fix the environment. Of course we would partner with Him in working with that. If He is actually involved in restoring every people and bringing hope into every story, then I will go and feed them. Then I will do what I can to clothe them if we're believing that God is actually restoring everything. I want to turn also to Matthew 28. We've read this a number of times. It's a very common passage that we go through from Matthew 28, from the Great Commission. Then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, and surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. But obey, this key word here, obey, that it actually calls us to action, our action, our behaviours, they actually matter. Again, if our why is that God is restoring everything, if we believe that Jesus is sending us out to disciple other people, then the why of that actually does shape the way that we live and particularly the way that we disciple others. If discipleship is about teaching other people to obey and we believe that God is restoring everything, then it will shape what we are teaching other people. This is the store. I've spoken about this a number of times, but the main way that we disciple people through the store is to get them to come on mission with us. We get them feeding the poor. We get them clothing the poor. We get them speaking words of life and hope and encouragement to their neighbors who walk in naked and hungry and lonely and isolated and we get them to come on mission with us, and they are actually part of restoring those people's lives alongside of us. This is the biggest way that we see people's lives and the way that they behave change and turn around. We could sit down and talk to them, and we do talk to them about Jesus, don't get me wrong. We actually tell them what Jesus is all on about, but we're teaching them that their actions actually matter. And so that when we get to the point where we are talking about Jesus, they're already living and beginning to live in a way that actually looks like they're Jesus' disciples. They're already following him in the way that they live 
putting other people before themselves, serving others selfish, self, selfishly, <laughs> selflessly. I don't know about you, but I often think with this kind of God who is giving out tickets for the afterlife, I don't know about you, but to me it feels like this really needy picture of what he would be like. Um, that I, not that I need people to come to me, but he's just this, it seems lonely, it seems like he's acting out of desperation, and it's kind of like the invitation is, I want to hang out with you later. Do you ever get that kind of feeling from that kind of message? It's like, I, it's not about now, it's about later, I want to hang out with you later. If you'd get this ticket, if you, and then we get to spend some time together later. And, and always out of that, I think that we find people have this holier-than-thou attitude because in some way they've been told that you are special because you've got this ticket. I, I love what Richard Raw says about holier-than-thou people. He says, holier-than-thou people usually end up holier-than-nobody. Holier-than-thou people usually end up holier-than-nobody. But instead, if your picture of God is not one who's going, I want to hang out with you later, but if your picture of God is one that much more resembles, hey, I'm doing something right now, will you join me? God is actively restoring and pursuing now. And then in that story, my little story, whatever it is that's going on for me, my little story gets caught up in God's big story. And this life then has purpose. This life has meaning. Whereas if this life and this world and this place is disappearing, where is the meaning in that space? And yet, as I said, if, if this life, if the resurrected king is resurrecting me, then I have purpose, then I have life. And that is good news to the people who are around me as well as I disciple them, as I love them. If God is restoring everything, and again, I love this paradox of, of what exactly what you were saying this morning, and I was a little bit nervous when you were talking about it, because it was kind of like, I, I'm almost saying, the, not the opposite, but, but there's this kind of interaction between these actions, and if you do them without love, but as I said, also the opposite is true. If you have love, those actions will be lived out in your life. You will act in such a way that is reflecting the way, and you'll be following Jesus in loving others, loving God and loving others in that. The guy's name I really cannot remember. We went uh, to see Bethel recently at Hillsong, and a guy initially got up and before we worshipped, asked for money for, was it Compassion? Tim, Tim Hanna, that's his name. But he got up right as we're about to begin to worship. And the words that he said just stuck in my mind and in my heart. He said, justice without worship is soulless. But worship without justice is powerless. And so we could do the Seven Hills thing as much as we want. We could go and serve and love. And this is kind of what Adrian was talking about this morning. We could do all of these things, but if we're not motivated by love and we're not actually wanting to point people to Jesus which is the ultimate way that we can show them love, then it is soulless. It is no point to what we're doing. We might as well just be another not-for-profit. But are we not serious about Jesus? And then, but also the opposite is true. If, if we are just worshipping here, if we're just gathering on Sundays, if we're just coming to listen to a talk, if we're just coming to sing the songs, 
and we step out the door and nothing else changes. If we're not following Jesus and loving others outside of this space, then that is also powerless. And all that we're doing is blocking up the streets and preventing parking on a Sunday. And I don't think that that's what God is on about. He is calling us to action. He is calling us to action. In Matthew 25, this is what I spoke about the other day when we're talking about who is in and out. God is actually, Jesus is actually saying, no, actually what we do matters. And where those, who are the sheep and those are the goats, the difference between them is these people, when I was hungry, when I was naked, you fed me. Their actions actually mattered. These stories are all the way through the Gospels, though. The parable of the sower in Luke 8 is, kind of tells us that there's this process that's going on. It's just not this initial moment where maybe we have a prayer and we get our ticket out of here. Actually, all of those people in that parable seem to have heard the same message, but they've responded differently. In the Beatitudes, in Matthew 5, blessed are those, and then add in everything else that he says in there, blessed are those, blessed are the peacemakers. There's action that is required. God is looking for people who will act on his behalf. God is looking for people who will do his will and his work in the world. In Galatians 5, Adrian again spoke about this this morning, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Action, it is all required, not to save us, but because we have been saved. So much of the understanding of the, that I hear through church and that I've heard for a long time and that we try to actually intentionally work against is that all of this stuff is about life after death. But if you look through the Scriptures, there is so much more said about life before death, so much more said about how we live right now, so much more said about partnering with Jesus now and working with God now than what happens later. It's not that later doesn't happen, it's not that later isn't important, but there is so much more time and energy and emphasis spent on life before death. And so following Jesus, I ask you this question, what difference has it made? Have you just put that ticket in your back pocket and gone, well, when I'm out of here, I've got somewhere to go? What difference has it actually made? What difference is it making to your neighbours? Are you actually following Jesus? Are you actually loving your neighbour? Are you acting on behalf of God? Is He empowering you to love them and serve them and bless them? Are you loving your neighbours? Now, faith, actually, it should move us to worship. And we come here together and it should, our faith should Move us to, to come and spend time with other people to worship Jesus together. But also, it should actually move us to action, to do something. We are the hands and feet that God is looking for. He cannot do it without the church. He cannot do it without the church. I'm going to ask the team to come up um, And again, I really want to emphasize this, though, and I want you to hear what I am saying, that our actions are not what save us. 
but it's because we are saved that we must act. If this faith that we have, has it actually penetrated our hearts? If it has, will it not bear fruit? Will it not change the things that you do? Will it not change the way that you live your life? Because if it hasn't, can such faith save you? 